0: Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP.
1: Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus
2: at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today I'm going to be joined by two esteemed economists from Moody's Analytics to talk about rent and housing affordability and multifamily. We have a really fascinating conversation. And I think if you are a rental property investor, a commercial investor, you're definitely going to want to listen to this because Lou and Tom, who are our two guests today, are really experts in rent growth and rent declines and recessions, and they have a really fascinating and expert opinion on what might be going on with rent growth over the next couple of years. So I'm not going to lead into it much more than that because it's a fascinating conversation and I want to get into it. I'll just tell you who these people are quickly. Uh, First guest is Tom LaSalvia, who is a senior economist, uh, in commercial real estate, emerging transit, housing sector specialty at Moody's Analytics. He specializes in all sorts of things, but he told me before the show that multifamily is his love. Um, and so he offers that expert opinion. And we also have Lu Chen. Lu is a senior economist at Moody's Analytics commercial real estate division. She has deep knowledge of urban economics and credit risk with special interest in senior housing and urban migration. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to bring on Tom and Lou to talk about the multifamily market, rent growth and all sorts of other fascinating topics
2: having to do with commercial real estate. can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day, with Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com/biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com/biggerpockets. <laughs>
1: Lou Chen and Tom LaSalvia, welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Thank you for having us.
1: An absolute pleasure. All right, Lou, you recently released an article called Key Takeaways from the Fourth Quarter Housing Affordability Update, and this was, at least for people like me, a fascinating read. Uh, I think our listeners would really like it as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research into housing affordability and what it has shown of late?
3: Absolutely, Dave. So this is really dear and near to our heart. So as a CRE researcher and Moody's analytics, uh, we care deeply on the housing affordability, which is on many American residents' mind. Uh, we really started tracking this from over a year ago when we had seen a rapid increase in the market rent across the board. And we, as we look back into the time series, as we look back into the data points, and the most recent updates really shown a burning issue across the board. Um, as we found out, the U.S. is now rent burdened for the first time nationwide um, since over 20 years ago we start tracking this. Um, usually, when we um, say a given metro or the U.S. is rent burdened, and that measurement we use is the rent to income ratio. So essentially, we measure how much rent each individual renter household is paying for a year as compared to their uh, median household income. So if the rental income ratio ever reach 30% or above, we call the renter household rent burden. And US as a whole in the fourth quarter of 2022 for the first time has reached that 30% threshold. And that was over one percentage point from a year ago. And it, it has been increasing for the past year or so. And it only recently has been moderating, but it's still an upper trending. And that 30% is really that symbolic threshold that we care, and which also in line with many of the policymaking, which has been trying to tackle with this affordability issue.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. I have so many questions about that. But one of them you just touched on, which was, why 30%? You just said it's it's symbolic. Is that all it is, or is there some economic reason why having a rent-to-income ratio above 30% is particularly important?
3: Absolutely. Just think about that 30%. As an individual person, if I rent a house and I have to pay 30% of my annual income on my rental, it's pretty burdensome. But there are I mean, academic and social evidence supporting that 30%. So Tom, correct me if I'm wrong. I think HUD is using that 30% um, from about half a century ago. And Harvard University has also been backing up and supporting that 30%. Of course, we have a 50%, which is even, I mean, severely burdensome threshold. But that 30% is, is high for average household overall. Tom?
4: Ultimately... This 30% was decided on when looking in particular at middle to lower income households and ultimately what they may have to sacrifice if they have to pay that 30% or 35% or 40%, right? So it's not as though you go from 29.9% to 30% and all of a sudden everything changes, right? So getting back to what Lou was saying about a bit of a milestone or symbolic in nature, but that 30% or around that 30% is important, especially in an inflationary environment, because the price of everything's been going up, including necessities. So then choices have to be made by the household. And households need their shelter, right? They need a place to live. And we often say rent eats first. And what that means is we're going to try to keep our kids in our apartment as long as possible without having to upend their lives and move to a different school district or a smaller house, et cetera. And unfortunately, we might have to sacrifice in other areas. And I think that's the significance of being around that level.
3: And Dave, I'm not sure if you have heard a recent debate on uh, the Federal Reserve bringing back the inflation to the 2% target. And people have been questioning why it is 2%. Why can't we raise that to 4%? Because how much different is from annualized growth from 2 to 4 percentage point? Probably you don't feel a dent if you are a little more than the average. But ultimately, as Tom alluded to earlier, um, we have to stick to some kind of a threshold, even if that doesn't mean too much difference if you are looking at 29 percentage point versus 31. You just have to have something to stick to. And it just turned out that 30% is a consensus where academia, policymaker, and society agreed upon that 30% is a is that lie we want to stick to.
1: Okay, well, great. That That's super helpful. And just to recap for everyone, we're talking about the rent-to-income ratio, which compares how much a family has to pay in rent compared to their household income. And it is now, for the first time in the U.S., surpassed this threshold of 30%, meaning that the U.S., on a national scale, is now a, quote-unquote, rent burden nation. Lou, you had mentioned earlier that This is the first time this has ever happened. Has there been other periods in the U.S. where rent, you know, has been close to this unaffordable or is this a relatively recent phenomenon?
3: We have been very close to the 30 percent threshold for some time. But I have to emphasize, we didn't get to this point a decade ago or two decades ago. So we first started tracking the national average rental income ratio, we started off at 22.5%, and that was back in 1999. So if you think about that, that was less than one-fourth, one-quarter of the average, the the median income household's budget, and now we're close to one-third of that budget. And there are periods where you can see the rate has been moderating, and there are periods you have been seeing the rate has been taking up, And I have to say, the second half of 2021 up until now is where we see that rapid increase of the rent burden across average American household.
4: Yeah, and I'll add to this in that over the last two decades, the general trajectory has been upwards, as Lou mentioned and what that is telling us is that there is somewhat of a mismatch between the development side of the industry and the demand side right population continues to grow income continues to grow but in an in, in an unequal manner and when that's happening we're using scarce resources right to build certain types of housing or other types of real uh, real estate within the country or infrastructure within the country and unfortunately little by little over the last two decades, it's become more and more expensive to afford more shelter. Now of course there's nuance in there, right and I don't think we want to lose that um, in this discussion because, you as a household still have a bit of a choice of where you live, right? Whether which metro you live in or within that metro, which neighborhood you choose, or within that neighborhood, which building and which square footage you choose, right? So we're not saying that every single household is facing this burden, but what we are saying is that the Level of income generally being spent on shelter continues to rise. And that's true at the multifamily side of things. That's true at the single family side of things. And little by little, there again, there needs to be trade-offs, particularly at that middle to lower income side of the income spectrum. That's super helpful to know. And I,
1: it just seems like we're seeing this across the board, multiple asset classes, a lot of different markets, which I do want to get into. But I'm curious just a little bit more to talk a little bit more about why this has been happening more recently. You talked a little bit, Tom, about this. It seems like an imbalance in supply and demand in in some markets or some places. In housing, not necessarily in rental housing, we've talked about that you know, sort of stemming from a lack of construction during for, you know, post Great Recession. Is that sort of what happened in the rental market as well? And also curious, like you said, it's been close to 30% for a while, but we only recently hit it. Why now? Like what what has happened during the pandemic that caused it to really sort of reach this breaking point?
4: I'll I'll start with the uh, the former question. About... Sorry, that was like a six part question. No, 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 so. no. no. <laughs> All related. The supply side story is quite interesting because there has been a good deal of multifamily construction over the last couple of decades. Yeah, it's gone up and down, given the different parts of the uh, economic cycles that we're in. But it's the, the point is where the money's been spent that I think is really interesting. And it really highlights why rent levels are increasing at the rate that they have been in relation to wages. If you look over those last two decades we keep talking about, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent, of development within multifamily has been to class A type properties, not BC, not the quote unquote workforce housing that's getting a lot of buzz recently, right? So I'm leaving outside the whole Litech side of things and public side when I'm saying that ninety, that 80 to 90% number, but it's still really telling, right? These are, again, these are scarce resources. We know labor is scarce. We know materials are scarce. And when so much of this capital is being devoted towards that type of housing. And rightfully so from the market's perspective, because they can lease that up still, right? That's it. but it's, it, those are going to be higher rent places. And ultimately it's going to cause the market to be tighter. In the workforce side of things, and we see that in our data very clearly, class A vacancy rates trend around 6%. Class BC vacancy rates trend around 3 3.5%, right? And that just shows you that difference of what's happening here. And so you're really getting this, this ecosystem effect of housing where so much of the construction and supply has been in one particular area, and... That by itself is causing rents to rise in that area, but then it's causing rents to rise for B and C as well. And it is, again, going back to who is this hurting the most? It's hurting the middle to lower income households the most. So I think I answered at least some of your first question as to why the supply story is the way it is. Uh, but Lou, if you want to add to that and maybe then jump onto to that second part of the question.
3: I don't have much to add on the supply side, but I want to continue on the demand side of the story. So um, if I can represent the millennials, um, I have to say the demand has remained really strong as millennials are forming and heading new households in recent years in particular. So if you think about when the demand side is ballooning, if you have more household entering into the rental market and housing market in general. And then we have this COVID period, which has that shock, which allows people to move around from metros to metros. Um, I do want to bring a little metro level nuances, because when we say the US national average is reaching that 30% threshold, I'm not trying to say everywhere is hitting that 30%. So there are places which are well above that 30% uh, rental burden, but there are also places where, although it's below that 30% threshold, but you are seeing this increasing trend for certain metros. And the metros, and if I just call on a few metros uh, Las Vegas, metros in uh, Texas, and Miami for Lauderdale, uh, Palm Beach in Florida, so all these places in the Sun Belt. They have been seeing the positive in migration um, coming from people who really enjoy sunshine, enjoying the beach, enjoying more spacious spaces. And when COVID happened, when remote working becomes trendy, become a possibility, become a necessity, and you see people voluntarily moving from California over to places where they have less COVID restriction, lower taxes. Um, cheaper houses. So that migration flow is bringing a lot of metros to a faster track on their rent burden. So that demand side is really adding that pressure to this already very tight market. So if we recall what Tom said about the B and C, all those places for for the workforce population and we are already having a very tight market and having this shock from the demand side is not helping the situation very well. So that's why we are seeing this increasing burden and fast increasing burden, which really started off by the end of 2021, um, continue on the majority part of 2022. And only recently we started seeing that moderating a little bit.
1: That's, that's That makes total sense. I'm curious if you see the opposite effect in some of the metros that are losing population? Are we seeing an increase in supply and then a subsequent, you know, some downward pressure on rent growth?
3: Tom, may I start off with San Francisco?
1: Hey,
4: you live there, so go for (laughs) it.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. So San Francisco was one of the metros. We're still seeing its market rent was 1.6% behind, nearly 2% behind its pre-COVID level. So that's after we struggled for three years and trying to make up just as everybody else and we are still having that little gap, believe it or not. Um, the reason was everybody was saying San Francisco was a really tight market. You have only this little space to build. And why we are having this problem is really driven by the demand. So the shift of demand, people getting pressed out and people got so fed up by um, then the, the wildfire and people who has luxury of working anywhere. So they left San Francisco, they left the Bay Area, they brought the demand away. And that is creating that much bigger hole to fill. So on the other hand, not only we are seeing the rent decline, Although for many other places, we like to say the rent growth has been moderating, but for San Francisco, it was really just, we haven't been able to catch up. That's one side of the story. And on the other side, if you track the median household income, has been increasing and increasing rapidly. By people who's really earning a lot from that tech boom, especially in the first two years of the COVID period, So declining rent combined with increasing income is really alleviating, at least on the paper, the rent burden for San Franciscoers. So it used to be, if you track the history of the top 10 rent burden match for the past two decades, so San Francisco has been in and out of the picture for quite a bit, so there has been a lot of variation. Because metros like San Francisco, like Washington, D.C., so all these very well-established tech metros is very cyclical. So whenever there is a recession and the tech sector is much more volatile than many other traditional sectors, and you see it's driving that demand, driving the income growth for the metros. And that's why San Francisco has been about 30% for some time. And then when dot .com bubble hit, it dropped off the list, and then it climbed up uh, again, reaching above and beyond 30% and back to below. So there has been variations. But it's interesting to see how a metro like San Francisco can be affected by both supply and demand, and in certain cases can be significantly driven by the renter household and their decision.
4: Yeah, I'll jump in here and just somewhat not counter what Lou is saying, but I want to bring up the fact that if this is happening in San Francisco, why wouldn't it happen in Boston, New York, some of the other cities that have been known to be very high-rent cities? And so it's a very interesting situation here where Yes, we saw all this migration early on in the pandemic towards the Sun Belt, and we had all of these Sun Belt darlings of Phoenix and Austin and Miami and Jacksonville and Tampa, et cetera, et cetera. Little by little over the last, I would say, 18 months, we are seeing maybe some of those folks return to some of these Northeast expensive cities possibly as the office comes back a bit. But there's another part of this demand story for cities like that, and I still think San Francisco is going to have a bit of this, and that these are lifestyle cities that are unique in their own right. And so while one might expect a lot less demand-side pressure for New York or Boston. What we really saw is household formation pick up dramatically in these areas and leasing activity pick up dramatically in these areas in the last year to year and a half. And what that's telling us is that there is this quality, right? If people really are choosing lifestyle moves, it doesn't mean it's all to the Sunbelt and it doesn't mean that all of the affordability issues are at the Sunbelt because we're seeing incredibly high rent to income ratios in some of the traditionally expensive cities. And, you know, Lou, I think you can back me up on that with some of the data, right? That, you know, these, these areas have come back and there is no rent relief for even these traditional northern cold weather cities
1: were you saying you know you're saying that there's household formation is that possible that it's like these people were remaining in a roommate situation or living together because things were so expensive and now that there maybe is a little bit less competition i know rents in manhattan have exploded but do you think there's some reason why household formation is picking up right now
4: There is a a timeline here that I think is appropriate. Early in the pandemic, we didn't want to be around other people. We were scared. And we also didn't have to go to the office. So a lot of the younger generation that often are the ones that populate New York City, many of them moved back with mom and dad and slept in their old room or on their couch or whatever that hobby room became or whatever it is, right? Right. And so we saw this kind of pullback in activity. And that's when all of those huge discounts in Manhattan were being talked about. And how if anybody wants to go back to the city, there's a great opportunity to get a huge discount. And then a year after that, when everyone had to renew, well, all of those kids, all of those people who were on mom and dad's couch came right back. Right. They're not the ones that chose Florida. They, you know, that especially that young and hungry group, there's still value in New York, right? There's still Mm -hmm. value in Boston. There's still value even in San Francisco, I think, ultimately, for that type of the population. And so once things opened up a little bit, once a little bit of a return to the office, that's when you saw a tremendous amount of activity. And many of those people at that point we're still at least a little hesitant to get roommates. (laughs) And so think about it. Now you have extra households looking for more studio apartments or one bedroom, or at least you're not bunking up maybe even illegally, which I'm not saying happens, but it may happen in places like New York, right? Where you're actually having too many um, residents within that particular apartment and you're living in a broom closet. I always say so. I think there is this timeline of a pullback and then this kind of back to the city mentality, but back to the city maybe without a roommate at first. I have a feeling that's going to change, or is changing right now. It's going to continue to change in 2023 as the economy softens a little bit.
1: Okay, great. I do want to get to talking about what happens from here, where you think rent is going to go, but... Tom, you mentioned something that I want to sort of go back to, which is that in the market, you know, multifamily market, the supply side, we're seeing that over, you know, over the last couple of years, development has been focused on class A properties. You know, this is a podcast for real estate and primarily real estate investors. You know, when I think about that, that tells me that the, you know, the risk reward profile for class B, class C construction and development is just not there uh, because, you know, these markets tend to be efficient. Do you have any idea why? Like, why is it not attractive or why are developers not building class C and class B properties at the same
4: rate? It's a fabulous question. And I have spoken to a good amount of developers about this and consistently I'm told that BNC just hasn't been able to pencil in the last 10, 20 years, meaning that the math doesn't work nearly as well as the math works for class A, right? The land costs the same amount of money, regardless of what you're going to put on that land. A lot of the structural development costs the same amount of money. A lot of the red tape is exactly the same that you have to deal with. So I slap on a few more amenities, maybe add a little extra space and a little better lighting, and I can... Up that rent considerably. And so, you know, developers continue to say, well, if class A vacancy rates are going to stay around 6%, you know, if I can lease up those properties pretty quickly and efficiently, then I'm going to go that route. I don't need to build workforce housing because the profitability is more within class A. At least it has been, I would say, in the last 10, 20 years.
3: Or on the other spectrum, um, if the developers are not building Class B and C uh, multifamily, it's probably better to start thinking or even investing in affordable housing. So we have, Uh. there is a term um, which I started hearing a lot, it's called the missing middle. Because if you start constructing affordable housing, um, there is a bigger collaboration between the public and private sector. So we have tax benefits, we have government sponsorship, and we have policy which are designated for supporting the building out affordable housing. Um, And then we have this economic incentive to build Class A, which left majority of the middle of the renter household being missed out on the market opportunities because they can't qualify for affordable housing and they cannot afford Class A. What are they going to do? So Tom, I recently did a very interesting exercise. So there is a kind of a threshold. If we say 50% of the median income household income is considered as the low income. But if you put 70, 80% 70, 80% of that median income as moderate but still low income. And if you plug that number into our rental income calculation and many more metros will jump on at me because they all of a sudden become even more rent burdened because that's where we are seeing a lot of the missing middles, and they couldn't afford that market rate apartment on the market. And I think that goes back to where I live in California and we have a lot of policies, not just for affordable housing, but also to build out additional units, such as um, ADU. Not sure, Dave, if you are familiar with that term. It's accessory uh, dwelling units, which can be attached or detached to a single-family housing unit to hopefully increase that supply for the missing middles. And there has been a lot of conversions from existing vacant commercial properties. And they work with the uh, planning department to rezone a little bit and convert that into a multifamily and hopefully allocating certain units into affordable. So there has been a lot of innovative ways, creative ways of solving and at least trying to address this shortage in supply.
1: Yeah, we, we talk about ADUs and upzoning a bit on the show because, you know, it is a good idea. I'm just curious if if it's enough, right? Because, you know, I know a lot of real estate developers, if it was profitable to build Class B or Class C, they'd do it. And I don't know how many, you know, homeowners want to build an ADU, you know, who are, who are willing to ADU. put up the cash. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. <laughs> there you go. Good for you. It's a great business, but I'm just curious, like, are enough home buyers, you know, it just seems more efficient to me to to figure out a way to make to incentivize the people who are professional apartment builders <laughs> to, to build the right housing units rather than
4: only relying on homeowners to become real estate investors. And Dave, I think that's where we're headed. I think public private partnerships incentivizing the private developers to find a way to build this missing middle. It's already being discussed at the federal level, state levels, municipality levels, and I think we're going to just constantly hear about it, whether it's an expansion of LIHTC in terms of the- What is LIHTC? Sorry, Oh, no, sorry. Um, So low-income housing tax credit, LIHTC low income housing tax credit. And it basically incentivizes developers if they put a certain amount of units that are at a certain threshold of the area median income in that building, they can get a uh, certain relief. And, you know, we've heard the Biden administration talk about expanding that. We've heard even the word my tech being thrown around, which would be middle income housing tax credit. Right. And so I think that's Part of the solution. I think another part of the solution will be we're finally at an era where zoning laws are going to be relaxed a bit. And I think that's going to be huge for development, not only in the uh, housing sector, but I think all across commercial real estate. The, the one, maybe a silver lining out of this rapid rise in uh, affordability issues is that it finally has told local leaders that they, they have to think about what has been working and what hasn't been working, and having very segmented zoning, while it's going to be maybe tough to relax those in particular areas, given NIMBYism, it's going to be needed in a lot of areas, and I think it is going to be granted in a lot of areas moving forward. Yeah. I mean, ultimately
1: there are so many proposed solutions. Maybe this is just my opinion is that until the supply side issue is adequately solved, they're all going to be band-aids and maybe they'll help in the short term, but it just seems like getting developers to build more or allowing developers to build more of this missing middle housing class could be really helpful. Um, I do want to ask you, though, you know, I'm sure everyone on the show wants to, listening wants to know what you both think about where rent is going now. So, Lou, you, you've done a great job explaining how and why rent has skyrocketed. We're seeing this big rent burden. What happens from here?
3: There is light at the end of the tunnel. So I want to start it off with a positive note and hopefully also end with a positive note. So 2023, um, we are projecting there would be a historic amount of new construction uh, coming online on the multifamily front. And there are a couple of reasons. A lot of the construction, which takes months and up to over a year to finish, and this started off um, as early as 2021. So that's where we still have a little bit of the const- supply side of the issue, the um the bottleneck on the supply chain, but it really penciled out for the developers, right? So the rent was growing rapidly. Um, The interest rate, thinking of when Federal Reserve started rising interest rate um, in early 2022. So at that point, a few months before that, the interest rate was still relatively low. The margin was high. The cost was relatively manageable and which inspired um, that construction to start or existing construction to continue. And the supply side, we are looking positively, we are going to see an increase in the volume. And on the other hand, the demand will stabilize because we are already seeing the softening, the stabilization towards the end of 2022. So this affordability issue, this fear of recession, this hesitation of moving back into the single family housing market will retain a lot of the rental household to stay in the multifamily market for some time. Fingers crossed, nothing goes south from there. And that'll help stabilize the rent growth. So we might already be seeing the peak of the rent burden across the nation. So 30% might be around the peak that we are seeing. and. I did have a sneak peek of our 2023 projection on the rental income ratio. I know Tom's going to be laughing at me because we do update on a quarterly basis. But at this point, based on the latest latest vintage data, we are seeing by the end of 2023, the national level rental income ratio should be slide off that 30% peak. <laughs> Not by much. Again, this is a symbolic number, but we should see the moderation of this burden a little bit.
1: Okay, that, that, that's really interesting because I think, you know, as investors, we often, you know, I've been saying to people, I don't think rent is going to grow for a long time. Um, not, I don't know, a long time, but at least for another year or two um, during this, you know, economic uncertainty we're in. Are you saying that the rent to income ratio is going to fall because rents are going to fall? Or are they going to sort of stabilize and, income is going to keep rising.
3: Okay, just for the record, we're not projecting one way or the other. So we are seeing the moderation of the speed because in it really goes down to the metro level nuances. So at the national level, we are seeing the rent growth going back to where we like it to see, right? The, the, the long run average. So it'll be moderating to a three percentage range. That's it. But at the metro level, there are places where we might see start seeing rent decline, uh, but there are also places where we might still see the rent is relatively more stable than many other places. So we have to realize it's not just about the supply and demand, but also on the other hand, the rental market, the rent is a quite a key figure. So many renter households, they only renew the rent after at least a year. So that's their lease term, right? So that's why when you look into the uh, shelter inflation in the CPI report, uh, even based on the latest reading, it's still doubly high, somewhere in the 7% range, right? And on the other hand, Dave, you're probably already seeing in certain places there has been decline in the new leases. So that is where you see that disparity or divergence, where the Federal Reserve, the CPI data, is tracking a combination of the existing rent and also the new rent, and which is showing that stickiness. But on the other hand, some of the newer leases are showing the discount. So Tom, I know you want to say something.
4: I think you said it beautifully. I will add. Not only new leases, but particularly in some of the newest construction, when those property owners are trying to lease up those properties, we're seeing concessions grow a little bit. So, But I would like to say, again, that we are not predicting a widespread level of rent declines based off of what Lou had already said about the stickiness, but I'll throw in there Uh, From the Moody's perspective, we don't, at this moment, expect a recession. We do expect softening of the labor market, but historically, to get rent declines, or at least a consistent amount of rent declines over a one to two-quarter time span, it requires some stress in that labor market. It, it, It requires an increase in unemployment. And right now, I mean, goodness, look at the employment situation report from uh, not that long ago, 500,000 jobs added, right? So we're at a two to one ratio of job openings to um, the amount that are unemployed. So unless we see dramatic changes to the labor market, and by the way, we are fully expecting a softening, but unless we see dramatic changes, we can't predict widespread rent declines because... You know, people are still having jobs, and they still feel relatively confident that they'll have those, right? I think part of this still goes to the expectation story. But you know it is an employment story. So if you want to know what's gonna happen with rent, you know, watch that labor market closely.
1: that's that's super helpful. and I, I do want to unpack a couple of things there before we get out of here. Um, you know, You Just to to summarize for everyone listening, one of the reasons rent is so sticky, like Lou said, is because when you look at rents, there's different things you have to consider. There's what people who are staying in the same apartment is paying and what people who are moving or signing a new lease are paying. And those are sometimes tracked differently. And different rent data companies have different methodologies. The CPI has sort of this famously lagging methodology. Um, And so there's different ways to think about that. And so I just want to make sure I heard it correctly, is that you think that there could be or there is evidence so far that people who are renewing or or looking for new leases, there is some signs that rents are are softening there. But as a whole, rents are remaining pretty stable right now. Is that right?
3: That's a fair statement.
1: OK, great. And then I was just curious, Tom, you just said uh, about historically what it takes for rent to grow down. I mean, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I do think we did see some rent declines in the 2008 era, um, not nearly as much as home price declines, I mean, a fraction of it. But can you tell us like the depth and scope of what happened with rent prices
4: surrounding the financial crisis? Yeah, we saw a bit of a decline. Um, Lou, if you can help me with the exact numbers, I want to say it's just a one to 2% over... A couple of years. But, you know, think about that situation from an economic point of view. Unemployment was around 10%, you know, and it stayed there for a little while. And this, this situation is dramatically different, right? We saw vacancy rates increase uh, well above five, six, 7%. I think we topped out around 8% in the multifamily perspective. And so you're you have to loosen the market again before you get dramatic rent declines. So, I, you know, I hope that you, as an investor or a lender, did not put 10 percent rent growth on your pro forma when you were getting that deal done a year or two ago when rents were growing there. But if you did put the long run averages. You know, there might be a little bit of a hiccup this year, here or there, but I think overall, that's where we're trending back to um, going forward. And Lou, do you have those exact numbers?
3: Thank you for buying that time for me to look into the exact numbers. <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, last summer, uh, summer of 2022 is when Tom and I was really interested. That's when everybody was cheered into a recession and they saw two quarters of GDP negative GDP growth. And they're like... Are we there yet? So when everybody was talking, and of course, Tom and I were interested, and we look at, we compare and contrast every single recession from uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s, when we call it a Volker period, up until the 2020 uh, COVID recession. So interestingly, if you look at the single family housing and multifamily housing markets, they play that rhythm very well, so usually you start seeing the single-family housing price getting a slap slashes um, at the beginning uh, of the recession. It really just signaling we are in the recession, and at the same time, multifamily. If you look at every single recession, it's almost consistently it doesn't get hit right away. When will multifamily, housing, um, uh, multifamily rent get a hit is when we are almost out of the recession. Why? Because that's when people are seeking the opportunity in the single-family housing market. So they boosted the single-family housing price to grow. And at the same time, because they played that rhythm really well, a multifamily, that demand was shifted. And you start seeing the rent changes um, having that bigger impact. So looking at the Great Recession, just to put the number in there, so we have an idea where we are. So during the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009, the single family housing price, if you compare the peak with the trough, declined 15% at the national level. And that is CPI adjusted, by the way. And- At the same time, multifamily rent growth, which had a decline after 2009, only declined 1.6%. Wow. Less than 2% if you compare the peak and trough. So it gave us the idea of the timing and the scale.
1: That's so interesting. So you're saying that basically people wait or like the, the decline in home prices sucks demand out of the multifamily market because people want to buy homes while they're cheap? Is that, did I understand that correct?
3: So when you start seeing the single family housing market momentum picking up, that's where you start seeing the demand being subtly shift from the multifamily housing units over to the single family housing market. Okay. And that also, I would hope that could be a leading indicator when we start seeing a massive Rent decline um, across the board. Maybe that's a signal we're out of this doom
1: um, oh, so that the the multifamily decline is actually a signal that a recession might be ending.
3: I hope. So we still have to run statistical tests on uh, if that's a a hundred percent signal, but usually that happens along that timeline,
1: okay. That's super cool.
3: and if you look at the past recessions, sometimes the uh, NBER will define the recession to end even prior to seeing the multifamily housing then declines.
1: Okay. Interesting.
3: So the timing goes along the timeline of the recession, but it wouldn't necessarily be prior if I have made that.
1: No, no, that that, that totally makes sense. That's really interesting. It, It lags the rest of the economy and the home prices a little bit
3: and also because of the stickiness
1: yeah interesting all right well thank you both so much for being here this has been fascinating i've learned a ton today i really really enjoyed learning from you both if uh if people want to connect with you Lou, where should they do that
3: i'm happy to share my email great so it's uh at moody's.com
1: all right great and tom
4: what about you Analogous to that, Thomas.lasalvia at moodys.com. Or you could check out our um, Moody's CRE webpage, which has a lot of our insights, and we'll be able to, maybe, Dave, we could attach that somehow. Sure. Yeah. We will link to that in the show description
1: for sure. Great. All right. Great. Well, Lu and Tom Lasalvia, thank you so much for joining us on the market.
3: Thank you for having us, Dave.
1: A true joy. Thank you. Big thanks to Tom and Lou again for joining us for this episode of On the Market. They are both from Moody's Analytics. If you want to check out their work, you can do that. They have a great website, all sorts of information about the real estate market, commercial real estate, and all that. I genuinely learned a lot about that. I think that the takeaways here for me, the big ones at the end were that, you know, we say this a lot on the show, but I'm glad to have two economists back me up that rent is particularly sticky and although we might see some headlines that rent is going down it might it was very likely to be a very modest decline in rents right now but you know i just want to reinforce what i've been saying for a little while here that if i were you and buying real estate and underwriting real estate i would assume very modest rent growth for the next 12 to 24 months uh, as Lou and Tom's research indicates, we've sort of reached this threshold where people might not be willing to pay any more than they have right now. And, you know, we saw this rapid increase in rent. Uh, and it sort of makes sense to me that the market is going to cool. I think the other thing I found just super interesting personally was just about that missing middle and how there's just a lack of building in Class B and Class C multifamily. It'll be interesting to see if there are more public-private partnerships or better zoning opportunities, because it just seems like something that the market needs, that there's going to be demand for this type of housing, and there is a lack of it. Um, So that's something I'm definitely going to keep an eye on. Would love to hear what you all learned from this episode. You can find me on the Bigger Pockets forums. There is an On the Market podcast. If you want to uh, talk about anything you learned or ask any questions, you can find me there or you can find me on Instagram where I'm at the Data Deli. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. Produced by Kalen Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal, and a big thanks to the entire Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.